Beloved, a considerable part of the four Gospels given to us in the New Testament are given to those days and hours in which our Lord Jesus approached the cross and suffered agonies beyond any of our ability to fully comprehend, not just the physical suffering, but the despair of his soul as we considered some of those words he cried from the cross just this last Friday, what we call Good Friday. And much of the four Gospels then record as well, absolutely staggering, wonderful details about the first resurrection morning, now more than 2,000 years ago. And I'm so thankful that the Word of God has recorded as much as it has. I think just one of the best stories of all taking place on the first day after the three in which he was dead in a tomb and rose again. So we're turning to the Gospel of Luke. You might like to follow along, have a Bible open there. Luke chapter 24, if you would. The 24th chapter of the Gospel according to Dr. Luke, a man who, when he writes, gives himself to considerable care to provide wonderful details, and this record is truly fascinating. Let me give you the context. Uh, I'm going to begin reading in just a moment from verses 13 through 35, a rather lengthy narrative, but it's well worth the read and your attention. But, of course, it is the first morning. It is Resurrection Day. In verse 12 there, we read that Peter got up, ran to the tomb, Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only. I'll emphasize that. He saw the linen wrappings only. And he went away to his home marveling at what had happened. And behold, two of them, that is two disciples, not named among the eleven, but two learners, two followers of Jesus, two of them. We're going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, and this is great irony, is it not? Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? They said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and they crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. 
Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning. They did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses, you realize that that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, five books of Moses. Then with, it says, all the prophets, well, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and and all those minor prophets as well, apparently. He explained to them, in other words, from their testament, what we would call the Old Testament, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. Now, they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? They got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together there the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. There's a popular song that's been around, well, as long as some of you. (laughs) Actually, it's more than 60 years old, so... Most folks here will recognize the title. What a difference the day makes. Do you remember that? It's starting to play in some of your heads, isn't it? It may not have been my most spiritual moment, but when I recently reread again this Luke 24 passage and this resurrection appearance of Christ on the road to Emmaus, I will confess It was not a hymn, but rather that song that kind of popped into my head. And I'll explain myself in just a moment. Most of you know the biblical story that we've just read. Before sunrise, I like to put it this way, the sun, S-O-N, rose. 
The resurrected Savior will appear to more than 500 of his followers over a period of 40 days. But on this first Easter morning, it's astounding, I think, we have him appearing with two, frankly, not so famous disciples. They, they were not numbered among the eleven. We only know the name of the one, Cleopas. I tend to agree with most commentators that his companion along this sorrowful way is perhaps his dear wife. They're going back home. As I say, it's astounding, but isn't it really, when you think about it, isn't it just like Jesus? That on the morning of his, my goodness, his victory over sin, over death, over the grave, that he would be found taking the time. In fact, our text records, it was all day. A seven mile walk. And then he stayed because, remember, they said, look, the sun is starting to set. It's getting late. It's now Easter evening. And he agrees. He stays with them just to minister so personally and so intimately to just two downcast, if I could put it this way, and very average kinds of people. Average like me. That's why maybe I like this story. This is the friend we have in Jesus, isn't it? Christ meets the gloomy pair as he travels along with them some seven miles away from Jerusalem. You know, maybe if I had been Jesus for all that mocking I had endured prior to the cross, when I walked out of the grave, I may have gone right to the center of town. In Jerusalem and said, come on out, folks, I want you to see something. Here are my nail printed hands and feet and side. And maybe he would just show them. But no, he he spends literally hours. He teaches select passages from the whole Old Testament to just two ordinary people. The work that Jesus does is always a very personal work. What a difference a day would make for them, right? By the way, they could have authored maybe the first few lines of that old pop song. It went like this. What a difference a day makes. Twenty-four little hours. I won't afflict you any further. The words are, brought the sun and the flowers where there used to be rain. What a difference a day made. Now get ready to say, ah. What a difference a day made, and the difference is you. But in their case, of course, the difference was the literal, bodily resurrected presence and communion and fellowship with the victorious Lord of the universe there in their humble cottage as sun sets and they will break bread together. Well, in any life, isn't it true? It's Jesus that makes all the difference. 
Now, what I want to do in the time we have together is trace their seven steps, if you will, on this seven mile journey. You say seven points to your sermon, preacher. The Easter dinner can wait. No, we'll we'll get you out in plenty of time. This is going to be a quick journey. These seven miles, seven steps, if we'll consider it in that way. And I'll go quickly here. Step number one. It's what I would call the uncertain step of doubt. Jesus meets them. Their countenance. Well, I don't know. It could stop. a. I don't know. What could it stop? Horse. They are so sad in their countenance, talking to each other and yet in a kind of spiritual paralysis. What, what did the text say? They they stood still and looking sad. He says, what are you talking about? And at first they don't even respond. They just kind of stood still. Looking very, very sad. And then this leads to our Lord's second step, if you will, with them. Step number two, the humbling step of rebuke. The humbling step of rebuke. Now, uh, Jesus does say to them, oh, foolish men. And so slow to believe the things that the scriptures have recorded. Folks, that's a rebuke. But that isn't name calling. You know that when Jesus uses the term foolish there, he's taking it to mean literally you seem to be ignorant. Now catch this of your own Bible. You seem not to know and connect with faith. The words of Moses, the words of the prophets, they're all about me. They need this rebuke. And sort of, I remember a story some years ago. There was this community-wide Easter pageant and various people in the Passion Play in in that town at that time were given different parts to play. Just about a year ago, I had the privilege of being in Oberammergau, Germany, where the, the great passion play is held. What a thrill that was to be there. This was not Oberammergau by any means. But listen to this. The character of Jesus went to a most unlikely person in the town, a big, burly barroom brawler, an oil field worker. I don't know why they picked him. He must have had a nice beard. He was the most unlikely person to be typecast as our Lord. We're told that after several weeks of rehearsals, the day of the Easter pageant, the Passion Play finally arrived. When they came to the part of the play where Jesus was being led away to be crucified, one little man filling in as a part of the crowd, Well, he just sort of got caught up in all the emotion of the moment. He joined the shouts of crucify him, crucify him. And as this actor portraying Jesus was led away toward Calvary in the midst of the shouting insults at the top of his lungs, this little guy accidentally sprayed some spit. In the face of the character playing Jesus as the actor walking by, carrying the cross on his back. 
Well, this oil field worker stopped in his tracks, reached up and wiped his face dry. Then he looked at the little man and said, I'll be back to get you after the resurrection. (laughs) Jesus is coming back after the resurrection. And if we're to be totally true, and I'm to be honest to my calling, he is coming back. This time, not on that humble donkey we talked about a week ago, but on that white stallion with a two-edged sword in his hand. He's coming to judge. He's coming after the resurrection. I'll take care of you after the resurrection. Well, this is why it is so vital and so important that we be those who love his appearing. Because by faith in Christ and what he's accomplished, we know that now there is no condemnation. There is no judgment to come to all those who are in Christ Jesus. But there is a judgment that's going to fall on those who would have said, crucify him, and that would be the end of it. So important. Faith needed this humbling step of rebuke if their faith was to be strengthened at all. And that's why Jesus is ministering to these two on Easter morning, giving them the scriptures. And so I call the third step, if you will, the sincere step of learning. Fresh from redemption's work, here is Jesus just out of the tomb. And he's conducting the first Sunday school class ever. He is teaching them. And that is what he does. I am the way. I am the truth you need to hear. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. We have much to learn. And he's saying to them, it was all there all along. along. It began in Genesis. And Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And listen to what Jeremiah had to say about me. I could hear him saying to that couple. Here's what Isaiah said. Why Isaiah in chapter 53 of his prophecy practically described in detail what my crucifixion was just three days, four days ago. Sincere step of learning. Rebuke, yes, we need the rebuke. To not be foolish, to not be ignorant, to not be slow to believe, but rather to take the word of God and learn it. And then, of course, what follows. Step four, I call it the, oh, I just call it the sweet step of communion. They say, come on in and recline with us at the table. And uh, the wine is brought forth and the bread is brought forth. And whatever else was supplied them during that time of evening supper. What's interesting is I read the text and read it with you is that even though Jesus is the company, he's the guest in their home. We read that it is Jesus who reaches out. He takes the bread. He breaks it. He's the one who will distribute it to them. It's unusual in Eastern culture. Well, it be unusual in our culture. Someone came to my table and 
And I had it full of goodies and they were to say to me, well, Jim, help yourself. But Jesus takes the bread and he breaks it. We learn later toward the end of the narrative, don't we, that when their eyes were opened, those eyes were opened in the breaking of the bread. Not only did they recognize him now, spiritually eyes, spiritual eyes open, but even in the context, these were the same hands that broke just a few loaves of bread by the seashore one day and it fed more than 5,000 people. These were the hands in the upper room only a few days before when he broke the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. Oh, this is sharing a supper for sure. What a sweet time around the table. But this is communion with the risen Lord who himself is the bread of life, whose body had been broken. This is our privilege too. more than 2000 years later. The invitation kind of gets turned around. He met with them in their home and he is the unseen host in every Christian home. But now that he has been raised and we wait with expectation, the invitation is always open. It goes something like this. And it's in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, chapter three and verse 20. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door through the years. We've learned to call it the heart's door, haven't we? I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will just hear my voice, if they'll open the door, I will come in to them. I will come in and be with them. This the sweet communion and we'll we'll eat together. We'll sup together. I never read Revelation 320, but what it tends to um, Make me think back to one of the first sweet dates I ever had with the woman that would become my best friend and then my wife for 25 years. It, I picture in my mind uh, a love feast such as I knew then. Hey, which can I put it this way? A really nice candlelight dinner. I will come in. I will sup with you. You with me, the step of sweet communion. It followed, remember, the learning, the step of learning. Step number five. I'll call it the the pleasant step of fellowship in the word communion that I just use. I have in mind the idea, the privilege that we have each of us individually, even if it means going to our own quiet place. The Bible talks about going into your closet where maybe no one else is and you can have some alone time with the Lord Jesus. How precious is that? But with this pleasant step of fellowship, here's what we read took place. Verse 33, they got up that very hour. Now, they had just walked seven miles that morning. They just had a meal and now they're walking seven miles back to Jerusalem. But why? It says they go back immediately and they found gathered together there the eleven and then those who were with them, that is, other disciples, saying as they got there, the Lord has really risen. And then verse 35 says they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. You know, coming out of a true and genuine spirit wrought communion with Christ is not 
something you can keep to yourself. You've just got to find others of God's people. Beloved, today that's called the church. This is where we come together and we get to share our experiences with the living Christ that abides with us through his Holy Spirit. The pleasant step of fellowship with others to take delight with others of like precious faith. We love the church because we love Jesus. In fact, I'm highly skeptical of anyone who tells me that they love Jesus, but have no time for the gathered people of God called the church. Something's out of tune there. Step number six, I'll call it the faithful step of proclamation. Just to reread verse 35 in that regard. They began to relate their experiences. They began to share. They began to proclaim what it was that Jesus had done for them. Uh, It's just our calling, isn't it? They were literally themselves now fulfilling the scriptural commands of this Lord Jesus Christ. You shall be my witnesses. And guess what? It's going to begin in Jerusalem. That's where they went back. They went back to Jerusalem and they were witnesses in Jerusalem. And the road will continue to travel and it will go out in many directions into Judea and into Samaria and then even into the uttermost parts of the world. Fundamentally, that's what our missionaries are doing this very day as we hold the line in prayer. They're just going out and they're sharing what great things Christ has done for them and what he can do for them with their faith in Christ. The faithful step of proclamation. You didn't think I could do it, did you? Step number seven. I call it this wondrous step of joyful worship. That the Calvary Road, yes, we behold the dying sacrifice, the Lamb of God. We, as Isaiah would say, would turn our eyes away. It was such a horrific scene. But now he has been raised, and in that, his body also healed. Except, of course, for the wounds of crucifixion. He would later in that upper room tell Thomas, you're having problems believing this? Oh, I think I might have problems believing that, too. Here, uh, put your fingers into the nail prints in my hands. And now they see him in a glorified state. He just appeared in the room, the Bible says, with the doors being closed. It's a a hint as to how we're going to get around. It's sort of a beam me up, Scotty kind of thing, I guess, when we get these resurrection bodies. The way we'll travel. But look a little later in the same chapter. I did not read these few verses, but I want you to see them beginning at verse 50. The very end of Luke's account. Where Jesus does appear, and he's there together with all of them at this point. And it says, he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, 
he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. This is the next great event, if you will, in the church or ecclesiastical calendar. We celebrate the ascension of Christ back to the Father. But look what it says there in the last two verses of this gospel. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy. There's an order to all these events. There must be an understanding of who he is. Spiritual eyes need to be open to recognize him. We need to see him as the broken bread, the bread of life and and confess him as Lord and share him with others. We we have said all of those things. But really, what what is the ultimate purpose, both in the coming of Christ and in the resurrection of Christ? You know, I had the privilege of going around a few minutes before our worship service and I was greeting various uh, ones of you, which is always my delight to do. And I made the point that uh, this, I said, is just what it's all about. It's why we worship every first day of the week. Uh, for the believer, there's a sense in which next Sunday is also Resurrection Sunday. It's, it's why we gather this first day, the new week. But the answer comes that the purpose of it all is that he would be worshipped. And that out of that, we who worship would have fullness of joy. That we would worship Surely he came because we are great sinners in this world without God and without hope. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He did that through his cross. And in rising again, he opens the gates to heaven. He pours out his grace. But again, we ask why. I think the best answer comes probably in all those glorious Verses in Ephesians 1, we won't turn there, but it tells us three times over when we are tempted to ask the question, why? Or why me? Why these two? Why Cleopas? The answer is, in Ephesians 1, that we would be to the praise, to the praise of the glory of his grace. We've been saved from our sins. How wonderful is that? But there's more. We have been redeemed in order to do what we could never do before. And that would be to worship him and to experience the joy of what it means to literally, spiritually be in union with Christ the Lord. Wow. I would say what a difference a day made. What a difference this day of resurrection should make for all of us who once could not see, but have had our eyes opened to the word of God, to the gracious command of a risen Lord. You know, that old pop tune, if you'd allow me to go back to it for a moment. Well, I just think after all these years, it ought to get saved. There ought to be a conversion of it as popular as it was. Maybe this one written possibly by... I'm asking you to use your imagination, a Cleopas. Maybe he would have written, as we lay down to sleep, we started to weep, remembering the cross and the nails, 
as the spear pierced his side. And we watched as he died. Then our lives seemed like the end of a dream that left our hearts saddened with gloom. But in the morning, we'd go see a rolled away stone and step into an empty tomb. With doubts and our fears came one close to our side and he opened our eyes to behold what the word of God says. Jesus Christ is risen. To those who believe, what a difference a day makes. It was my privilege very early this morning, still dark out except for that full moon. I thought, my, the sun's coming up very early. As I made my way to the sunrise service at beautiful Japanese gardens, what a great time we had there. Uh, it was so bright out because so happens the moon was full. And I did what I've done for the last number of years. You kind of pick up your own personal traditions, I guess. I can't get to Japanese gardens. In fact, I can't even get to church each Sunday without driving past golf pines Memorial Park, the cemetery just up the road. And in the dark of the morning, before I had spoken to another living soul, I drove in there and went to my dad's grave. I've done that every Easter morning for the last six years. Can't believe it's been six years. And I, I allowed my fingers again to to trace my own last name, Sharp, J. Frank. It's been six years. And there in the quiet with just the sound of the turtle dove and other creeping things, I noticed no one was up, no one was awake. And I said, Dad, you're still resting, but I know you're waiting. I know that because in the last hours of my dad's life on earth, I was privileged to draw especially near to him, not only as his son, I happened also to be his pastor. And I remember his last audible, understandable words, and he was in the throes of his last hours. I had prayed for him. And before I could say the amen at the end of my prayer, he gathered strength. And it was the clearest resounding amen that I had heard in a long time. That's why I love the word amen. And I will hear me say it all the time. Amen and amen. My dad's one of two last words. So I knew at the end of my prayer what he was doing was approving of what I had prayed. And I prayed every grace upon him. I thank the Lord for his life and for being my dad. But after he said the amen, his eyes no longer were fixed on me. He, he lifted them up to me. What was the ceiling? I, I think in the grace of God, like some can testify, maybe just a glimpse of glory, only, only hours away for him. And, and his profound 
last word that I have to hold as a treasure forever. You're going to think it's not so profound, but for me, it was worth ten sermons on the subject. He had said, Amen. And then he said, Okay. Okay. I don't know where you are in the journey. We're all headed in the same direction, short of Jesus coming again, and we have the privilege of meeting him in the air. Let me tell you, there will come a time when we'll be speaking last words. But if you're a child of God, you can walk right through that valley, the shadow of death. And I don't know what profound words you may come up with. I hope I can do a little bit better than okay. But if all I were to say as the gates of heaven began to swing open would be the words, okay, it is because of what Christ has accomplished. And it is because he rose again from the dead. It's all okay. God's people said, amen, amen.